Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, how you doing out there? What's going on? This is the Other People Show. I am Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles, California. Thank you for tuning in. I have a great episode for you today. My guest is Sam Lipsight, author of a new novel called No One Left to Come Looking for You. I knew there was so much I wanted to say about this world and this time, but I wanted something that was very concrete to hang it all on. And so the idea of like, you know, a mystery, the idea of somebody looking for something felt so simple and elegant that I could, you know, kind of pull that as this line from, you know, the beginning to the end. And then all the other stuff I wanted to say, I could just drape over it. All the riffs, all the play, all the, you know, the names and the lyrics and the, the stuff you're talking about, all the, the bits could, could sort of hang off of this taut narrative line of, of a crime a crime story. Okay, that was Sam Lipsight. His new novel is called No One Left to Come Looking for You. It is available right now from Simon & Schuster. It's a dark comedy. It's a mystery. It's a New York City novel. Definitely a book about a particular place and a, a particular place in time. New York City in the early 90s. It's about the underground music scene, the post-punk music scene in Lower Manhattan, 1993, to be exact. No One Left to Come Looking for You is about a guy named Jonathan Shit, who has recently changed his name to Jack Shit, and he's looking for his bass guitar. His buddy, the Earl, is the lead singer of the band. He has absconded with Jack Shit's guitar, presumably to sell it for a fix and so Jack sets out in search of his friend and in search of his guitar in New York and as he goes about searching he runs into stuff he runs into people and things and circumstances that derail him 
and distract him and at times obstruct him from completing his quest. This is a very funny, very smart, at times moving and even elegiac novel from Sam Lipsight, one of our best fiction writers. If you like to laugh while reading, if you like people who can really write great sentences, then Sam Lipsight is probably for you. This is his third time on the Other People Show, and I am honored to have him back. It's always fun talking with him. And this conversation was particularly fun because we got into Sam's musical background, which you might not be aware of. No One Left to Come Looking for You does have some autobiographical elements because uh, Sam Lipsight was in a band called Dung Beetle way back in the day, early 90s. It was perhaps an underappreciated, but at the same time influential art punk band for which Sam did vocals, which is to say he screamed into the microphone. He made noise. (laughs) He emoted. So you'll hear us talk about that, among other things. My conversation with Sam Lipsight is coming up in just a bit. Before we get started, I do have some good news about my book, Uh, For those of you who don't know, I published a novel earlier this year. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, and it was just named one of the best books of the year by the San Francisco Chronicle. So that news just came in, and uh, it's very exciting. It's nice to make a list. At least I made one list, right? Among the millions of lists. So uh, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything is out there in trade paperback, ebook and audiobook editions if you would like to read it. I narrate the audiobook. One more time, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, one of the best books of the year, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. So it's the holiday season, and I do want to remind you that the Other People podcast is listener-supported. It is a free show, which is to say... I make the entire archive available to you, the listener, for free. More than 800 episodes. All of it you can get to. There are no paywalls. And the reason there are no paywalls is because I hate paywalls. I want these episodes to be available. I want these conversations to be available to you. I want my guests to be able to share them easily. I don't want any of that nonsense. But in exchange for making the archive free, I am counting on listeners to support the show. And I know that's a big ask because I know there are a million people and things asking you to support them, right? And so what I've done is I've made it pretty simple. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month. That's it. Over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Just throw a dollar in the hat. Throw $3, throw 5 whatever you can swing. 20 I don't know what your situation is, but it will help keep the show going into the future. It helps me continue to do this work, and it is a lot of work to put this show out every week. So if you're listening, if you get something from it, if you like it, if you consume it, I hope you will support it over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. The Other People Podcast has a YouTube channel. Did you know that? And these episodes are now on video. So previously, you could just listen on YouTube. The entire archive of this show is on the Other People YouTube channel. 
And the big shift in recent weeks is that there is now video. I record video and you can watch the show on the other people YouTube channels. So if that sounds good, head over to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. And then when you get there, when you get to the Other People channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free and it helps. Likewise, the Other People podcast is now on TikTok. I have been experimenting with TikTok and posting clips, video clips from each week's episode. So if you're on TikTok, go follow the show. The handle is at otherppl.podcast. The Other People podcast also has a weekly newsletter. I do a weekly email newsletter once a week. You should sign up for it. It's free. You can sign up over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up at my website, bradlisty.com. So it's a, it's basically just an enumerated list. I share news of the latest episode of the show, and then I also share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting or funny or amusing in some way. So check it out, the email newsletter, sign up once a week, that's it, and it's free. If you have any feedback for me, if you're listening and you have thoughts or you want to tell me a story or you want to file a complaint, the show's official email address is letters at otherppl.com. Today's episode is made possible by Vintage Books, home to bold new voices that help us understand the current moment we live in. Vintage Books is proud to offer a new book by Jane Kaplan called The Story of Jane. It is the subject of the acclaimed HBO documentary, The Janes. Newsday calls it fascinating. The story of Jane succeeds on the steam of Kaplan's gripping subject and her moving belief in the power of small-scale change. So what is the story of Jane, you may be asking yourself. The story of Jane tells the powerful story of the women who founded and ran the legendary Chicago reproductive rights organization called Abortion Counseling Service, otherwise known as Jane. And this book is written by one of its members. It's a compelling testament to a woman's most essential freedom, control over her own body, and to the power of women helping women. Again, it's called The Story of Jane by Jane Kaplan, available now from Vintage. All right, so my guest today is Sam Lipsight. His new novel is called No One Left to Come Looking for You. It's available now from Simon & Schuster. You can hear the music playing right underneath me right now. I have to say that today there was extra pressure in picking the music because Sam was part of an art punk band. I, you know, apologies if this music isn't up to snuff because I use one of these music libraries. I don't know if it's good enough. There's not an art punk section, you know? I'm trying to be on brand here, but doing the best I can. Sam Lipsight is the author of the story collections Venus Drive and The Fun Parts, and he is also the author of four other novels entitled Hark, The Ask, which was a New York Times notable book, The Subject of Steve, and Homeland which was a New York Times notable book and received the Believer Book Award. Sam Lipsight's fiction has appeared all over the place, including The New Yorker Magazine, The Paris Review, and Best American Short Stories. He has received a Guggenheim. He lives in New York. He teaches at Columbia. The whole nine yards. So very pleased and honored to have Sam Lipsight back here on the Other People podcast. 
and let's get to it, okay? Here he is, folks. This is Sam Lipsight, and his new novel, One More Time, is called No One Left to Come Looking for You. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the word that I would find problematic there is musical, because I wasn't very musical. But I was the, I was the lead screamer in a uh, band called Dung Beetle, and we did live in the same area at the same time. And so I was certainly drawing on some of my experiences and, and sort of what it felt like to be there while writing the book. Well, a friend of mine, a writer friend of mine here in L.A. named Adam Greenfield was telling me that one of his friends was in your band with you. Is it Reynolds? Is that the last name? Yes, Rob Reynolds. Rob Reynolds, yeah. So yeah. my buddy you know Adam Rob? is... I don't, but my buddy Adam was like, oh, yeah, my buddy Rob was in that band, Dung Beetle, with Sam, because I told him I was going to be talking with you. Yeah. So. I, well, I'm, very, I'm still very close with Rob. We talk all the time, and I was actually out in L.A. recently and, um, and hanging out with him, and he, he did some music along with... a. Remember a band called Shudder to Think? I do not. Well, they were a very good band from, from that time, but he's friends with a guy named Craig Wedgen from that band, and they did uh, some music for the audiobook version of my novel, so uh, uh -huh. it was all coming full circle in a nice way. That's awesome. You know, this scene, uh, I have to admit, it made me feel, I felt like uncool, or I felt like a cool deficit because I was thinking of that myself during this time period as like a senior in like a public high school in Indiana. And I just had no, I guess I read Rolling Stone and Spin Magazine in those days, but I just didn't know a ton about anything, not just music. <laughs> uh, but you know, yeah. like to be in that scene, to actually have lived in lower Manhattan when it didn't, wasn't completely overrun with like banks and you know, all the stuff that we know about has happened to Manhattan, uh, real estate wise and culture wise and everything. Like when it was still kind of possible to be uh, like a noise, a noise rock band and live there and make a go of it. Right. I mean, there's a little bit of uh, nostalgia in that sense. Well, the book's sort of about the passing of that time and about and specifically about these, these characters are at the, at the kind of in the transitional moment and they're sort of the latecomers. You know, punks already happened. It seems like maybe the really vital things have already happened. And these are kind of after fumes in a certain way. And it still hasn't totally gentrified and totally turned. And it hasn't become what it is now. But um, these are like the, this is the, la the last, these are the last stragglers in, in some ways. And I think that I was tapping into a feel, that feeling that we sort of had. You know, it was 1990, 93, you know. The heyday had been 15 years, 16 years earlier, or whatever. But um, uh, I think that that's a, a big part of the book. And you know, as you know, it sort of the book starts with this band and, and their little problems, but sort of the thing kind of grows, and we get into real estate, and we get into politics, and we get into cops, and we get into you know class antagonism, and all sorts of things going on in the city. But in terms of, you know, being cool or anything or something, I, you know, I think that a lot of us were kind of idiots from the suburbs who didn't know anything and came to the came there just because we wanted to be part of something. And that's where we learned about what we, you know, what was cool and what wasn't. And, you know, there was always I grew up in suburban New Jersey and there was always somebody's older sibling had a, had a Velvet Underground record or something, or, you know, or like a, then later a Sonic Youth record or something like that. You know, you sort of had to cobble it together. And as you know, there were. There was no internet, so there, you, you had to really, it was word of mouth. It was sort of passed along person to person, zine, you know, 
one grubby hand holding a zine, you know, handing it to another sort of thing. So that was part of it as well. Yeah, it's a, you know, it strikes me how much place and community matter when it comes to a person's education along these lines. I mean, I guess that applies maybe more generally, but I'm, you know, I, I think of my own trajectory and it's like Midwest, cloistered, suburb, not unlike like Cutwolf. Wasn't he the one from Cincinnati? He's from, yeah, he's from Ohio, yeah. Yeah, the character in your book, uh, Cutwolf. And, uh, and then I moved west and went to Boulder and of course got into hippie music, like go figure, right. you know. That's just well, what I was surrounded by. That was with. the other way to go. You know, I had, I had friends who went, you know, the fish but it was, or whatever. <laughs> but, but it wasn't as cool. I think that's the thing. It's like it wasn't as gritty or as cool or maybe even as intelligent at the level of the fan or the enthusiast. I think maybe the musicians sometimes get a bad rap because the fans are such right. uh, fools or something. But it's just but the, uh, it's but the interesting. Fans are all, the fans are all billionaires now, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So I want to read because, you know, it's interesting to me to think of you as a young person in 1993 in lower Manhattan in Dung Beetle, you know, sort of living some version of the scene that you describe in your novel. And I was reading a uh, or I guess the question first is, you know, when it comes to the gentrification of Manhattan and the major shifts that were sort of (coughs) underfoot at that time. It sounds like you guys were aware of it. Like, is it something that you were aware of as it was happening back then? Or is it something that you now can maybe see in focus with the benefit of hindsight? We were aware of it to a degree. And we also, you know, the terminology was different. I think people talked about yuppies a lot in those, you know, the yuppies are moving in and the yuppies are taking over the block. And that was sort of the... The language, and even we were the yuppies on a certain level compared to you know the, the people. First, the people you know d- different kinds of ethnic communities that have been there for forever, and then like the you know the real hard bitten you know artists and stuff who had been there for much longer than we had, and they saw us as these kind of parvenu fools coming in. So there's always like you know um, there are always different degrees of that, but uh, and so we sensed there was there was always kind of undercurrents of, of resentment and, com- and there were conversations about it but it wasn't a full-blown discourse about gentrification at least in, in that I sensed that it you know that it would become mm. but it yeah it really it really has changed I mean even I know that I never lived in New York but yeah I remember going to New York in the 90s for the first time and then going back subsequently and even being able to see it myself as somebody who's like there once every couple of years or something, or maybe even less than that, you know, it's definitely shifted. Absolutely. No, it's, I mean, no one can afford, you know, to live there. and No one interesting can afford to live there at right. this point. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very different world. But I mean, the, I, you know, I assume there are pl- other places where, where everyone is right now even if it's not even New York, even if they've pushed been out, even been pushed out of most of Brooklyn at this point. I mean, where is it? Like, will you go to Queens? Like, where is it now? Where's the scene? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, you know, there, there are different scenes. There are scenes in Brooklyn. There are some weird scenes. I mean, if you read about these scenes going on back in, you know, downtown New York, but they seem fueled by certain kinds of money and stuff. So it's not, it's, it's, it seems a little different. But maybe it's in Cincinnati. I don't know. Pittsburgh. I keep Pittsburgh. hearing about Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> There's like bridges and a river and, you know, it's got some semblance. Pittsburgh's great. I love Pittsburgh. My, my Half of my family's from Pittsburgh, so. There you go. Yeah. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, and it's funny too, you talk about like the heyday being 15 years earlier. I feel like the heyday is always 15 years earlier. Like when am I ever yeah. going to live in the heyday? <laughs> Well, if you're living in it, you're not even aware, probably. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, so I want to do something, and I hope I mean, this well, won't I guess, be... I guess what's funny about it to me is always, you know, people nowadays, younger people, have this idea about the 90s. Oh, I wish I were in the 90s. You know, I like the music. You know, there were, people were, you know, had a better attitude about, you know, the world then, whatever they say. Um, it's, it was, and to them, it's more a more authentic time. And at the time, it felt very inauthentic compared to earlier times. And maybe that's the kind of... The thing that keeps happening over and over. Yeah, I mean, I can I can get nostalgic for the '90s, and I think maybe your book evoked that in me. And I think one of the things I was going to ask you about, with regard to the story that you're telling in the time period that that you're working in, is is what it was like for you to revisit that time and to write a world that is pre-internet and pre-cell phone, which I think has. I mean, if I think of anything that I sort of really get nostalgic about it is the way that we used to relate to one another absent of all this, you know, digital stuff. It does feel more authentic to me in some senses. We used to actually have to hang out and like talk on the phone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there. Well, in writing that, I remembered that there were phones, you know, there were pay phones. There were people had, you know, a, you talked on the phone or if you needed to find your friends, you couldn't text them, you had to go outside and find them. Right. You know, they could be at right. this coffee shop or that bar or this place, and you had to see where they were. And if you didn't have a plan to meet them, that, that was your, that was the deal. And I, that, I get a lot of mileage out of that in the book, actually. You know, that, that's instant action, somebody having to go find somebody else. Right. Whereas nowadays, so this is why I'm always talking to writers who, you know, are uh, always complaining about, you know, they hate having to write novels that take place in the era of cell phones and, and instant communication. 
and they want to write about times before that. I mean, I think that, you, you know, you shouldn't shy away from your own time just because you don't want to deal with the, the narrative complexities of the technology. You know, you, you just you have to find your own solution to it. But it was certainly a, kind of a relief to have things that simplified in this novel and really feel like, you know, okay, what's he going to do now? I guess he's got to find a payphone. Right, <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> well, and, you know, I don't like to sound like a curmudgeon. I know that it's like, I just sound like an old guy if I'm like, it was better back in the day. But I always go back to this one anecdote when it comes to this sort of thing where I was reading an interview with, I think it was Tom Petty. And he was talking about the era of albums versus the era of like digital downloads. And I think it was even like Napster, just like the individual tracks on iTunes. It was like that time, I think. And he was just saying like, look, you know, sometimes change is worse. Like things were better. It was better to go get an album on vinyl and to read the liner notes and to listen to the full thing as a complete unified work. I get that it maybe is not as convenient as like the digital download, but I kind of agree. And like, I guess maybe there's a part of me that feels the same way about the era of actually having to call people and go find them and meet up. And even if it was logistically a hassle, it was maybe a more authentic way to live, like a healthier way to live. That's just me. Maybe I'm a grown Yeah, man. no, I mean, I, I was never a big fan of the telephone, to be honest. I, I didn't like talking to people for, a long, for hours on the phone. I liked talking to them face-to-face or not at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but in a way, when email first came along, I was excited because, you know, I liked that distance and I, I felt a facility with words so I, I could, you know, use that in, in a way that I... I didn't always find with with uh, telephone conversations, but I, I know what you're saying. The, as far as the album, the album was a, was an art form, you know. It was and a distinct art form. It's not just about you know. It's not just that there's music. It's like the album was a thing, right? And we don't really have that anymore in the same way, except for maybe like you know, you know, my daughter is a big Taylor Swift fan, and she, I was just you know, gonna say, I was she's just gonna, gonna say, she buys the Taylor Swift album and analyzes it the way people would like sit and listen and to, you know, the Beatles or whatever and read the line or, and read, you know, look at the album art and, or Tom Petty record or whatever. Um, so it still exists, but not, I don't think it's as widespread. You know, I think you have to be a superstar to get that kind of attention in yeah, some ways. Yeah, no doubt. Which, which, you know, and, you know but for different kinds of, you know, formats come and go. Like even the, the two-hour feature film doesn't seem to be the same thing it was, you know. That and just that occurred a, to me. That was a great 20th century format that's kind of gone by the wayside in some ways. Yeah, it's now, you know, you have all these. I mean, I think I read something about that, too, or somebody was complaining about it, and I was nodding my head because it's like you have all these serialized narratives on television, which can be great. You know, it's great to have to, some room to sort of roam and to tell longer stories, but it also can lead to really inefficient storytelling. Like, as much of a pain in the ass as it is to write a hundred page or 105 page screenplay, the defined nature of that form enforces a kind of discipline on a person as a storyteller. And when someone gets that right, it's its own thing. It's, and it's wonderful, you know, and it's, it would suck to lose Oh, we'll solve that problem later. Or we'll just leave that hanging and reverse it later. Like that sort you know, that's right. There's a discipline. You have to deal with all of your strand, your strands and, um, and figure it out. Well, I want to do something to you. I hope you will. I hope this will not be too torturous to you, but I'm going to read a line or a couple of lines from a review 
of No One uh, Left to Come Looking for You from the LA Times. And I just want to, I want to talk to you about it because I feel like it holds some truth and I'm wondering if you agree. So the reviewer, I think it's Mark Weingarten, if I'm remembering correctly, says, quote, ever since Lipside emerged in 2000 with his short story collection, Venus Drive, he has been preoccupied with characters searching for some kind of twisted honor in resisting the money and status-obsessed modern world. It tends not to work out for them. Lipsight's humor is born of their impotent rage against the machinations of runaway capitalism and unchecked acquisitiveness. End quote. How does that, how does that hit you? That hits me pretty true. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. One thing that it comes up in the book a lot, but back in, back in the in the day when people talked about selling out as something you would want to avoid. Yeah. Um, I think I thought a lot about that at the time, and I just never stopped thinking about that, I, I think is what happened. Um, and so I do think that's been a theme throughout. I've always also, I think, written about people versus institutions, yeah, and the expectations of, that society puts on people and how they feel ill-equipped to be the person their society says they're supposed to be. So all of those things are all, you know, kind of all swirling together. But absolutely the idea of, um, I think impotent rage is, is exactly right. That's what a lot of my characters uh, are filled with and where I hope some of the, the humor is derived from. No doubt. And I think maybe this is why your work speaks to me and speaks to so many people. I think about this fear of selling out. I think about the fact that you and I are both Generation X. That might be a generation-specific thing, you know, to, to be thinking about and even that lingo. Well, yeah, I mean, it doesn't even exist anymore, and, but um, maybe it will again. I, I, uh, my friend Mark Marin always had a, he had a joke many years ago about, you know, what was it, you know, something about like, a, you know, there's always those few unpopped kernels of popcorn at the bottom of the bowl, you know, those are the ones that didn't sell out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, I think about uh, with social media and my awkwardness with a lot of it, it seems like, like you were saying, like to advertise oneself, to adopt maybe the mannerisms of advertising culture and the logics of corporate capitalism it's just baked into the cake at this point. Like no one's even thinking about resisting it for the most part. Right. And I mean, I think, I think the, I mean, I feel like maybe we're these old fogies who are kind of unable to, to understand that there is no resisting. So why, why not do what you can for yourself? Um, and it's almost like we're people, we're like prudes from, you know, who, who are watching the sexual revolution happen and we just can't understand all these people. Um, Why am I so? But I want to die. I want to die on this hill, Sam. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to leave my uh, my hill. You know. No, it's hard. I mean, I think we're a generation that we know we have to do a certain amount of self promotion, and we know we have because you know that's that's how the system works now. Um, but it feels weird. We we're, we're not comfortable doing it, and people younger than us are comfortable doing it, and they feel it. It doesn't feel dirty to them, and it still feels dirty to us. And I think. That's our problem, not their problem. But, you know, it is, it is our hill. You're right. That's it. And, you know, I think, too, about uh, death pretty frequently. Like, not in a, hopefully not in, like, a morbid way. But just, like, you know, I think it's good to be like, well, what's, how am I going to feel at the end of all this? And, like, what do, what do I really want to do with my time here? And, like, what, 
little measly thing do I want to leave behind? And I think that's part of my calculus too, when it comes to not selling out and to trying to, and trying to have some integrity as I guess I would define it personally. And then something that I just talked about with my guest last week was this intuitive sense. And I think you share it maybe an explicit sense too, of wanting to resist contemporary cultural values. Like, I just feel like the general tide and the general momentum of things isn't for me (laughs) and maybe isn't healthy. And maybe, like you say, maybe that's just my problem and everybody else is fine and I'm projecting something. But do you have a sense of that? Like like a sense of dis-ease? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's just a... I mean, maybe we share like a natural distrust of power, a natural distrust of, uh, you know, capital accumulation. And I, I think that that's maybe what changed. People saw it as such this great positive thing, but I, I always distrusted it. And so if that's what the culture is, is lionizing, then I'm going to be suspicious of it. I'm going to be more aligned with other cultural currents that are about other values, including, you know, the kinds of solidarity that can resist the most oppressive forms of capitalism or, you know, whatever people can do to carve out their own uh, ways of having communities or lives that, you know, aren't just about, you know, selling and acquiring and, you know, basing the worth of your life on, on the worth of your bank account. And, and, thinking that there is something more and also that there that there are really bad things being done in the name of this system that also need to be challenged you know at at all times so yeah i mean i I feel like that's that was a generational feeling like you know we joked we were the generation that joked about you know the man because the generation before us talked about the man in a serious way and so we were ironic, <laughs> like, yeah, the man, you got to watch out for the man. But we still meant it on a certain level. We still believed it. Sure. And I think that then, then that shifted in some ways. And perhaps it was, you know, there's a line in the book, like, you know, about how the, you know, uh, Jack says, you know, well, our, our, our irony smothers our politics, but they're still there, you know, is his point. And I think, you know, maybe that's, maybe that, that was the problem. But who knows? So this book is about... A protagonist named Jack Shit. Yeah, I, I almost said Sam Shit because there is some overlap here. I with was your own. I was Sam Shit. Yeah, in the yeah. in Dung Beetle. In Dung Beetle. That was I had a few names at different points in the band's history. I started as Pogo Spinoza, and then I was Sam Beetle, and then in the later stages I was just Sam Shit. So that was the evolution. <laughs> this is important stuff, man. I know, I know. These are the, these are these are the, 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 the this is the gold, you know, the golden details of the uh, of the time. But you're writing about a band called the Shits, and your protagonist is named Jonathan. Yeah, but he's now changing his name to Jack. Yeah, I, I you know I laughed so hard about the preoccupation with names in general. Just the naming in this book is is fantastic. So you have the Shits. You have Jonathan Shit, who's now Jack Shit. You have Cut Wolf, his bandmate. You have Hera, who's a bandmate. You have the Earl, Transine, Vesna, Karina, Toad, Molotov, Heidegger, Mounts. Like you know, there's just so many like great names in this book. 
And I want to have you read, if you would, I don't know if you have a copy handy, but I wanted to have you read from a section of the book that I think maybe gives readers an overview, not only of the scene and the time, but of the band, you know, which is so central to your narrative. Okay. I guess I should preface this by saying he was earlier talking about being in this other band that was kind of a more, you know, straight up hardcore political band from the 80s. And he kind of, it was a band that had been around forever. People always passed through playing in it for a little while. And, you know, it was sort of a rite of passage to play. And you said, you mentioned his name, Toad Molotov's band. So this was the annihilation of uh, the soft left? The annihilation of the soft left. And so he was, he had just been talking about, he had met his current bandmate in this, you know, in this world of this other band, but now he was, they moved on. Truth is, despite our roots in the annihilation of the soft left, the shits are pretty soft ourselves. We are not from the streets. We are each of us semi-misfits from one middle-class suburb or another, except for Hera, who hails from serious money. Her father is one of those junk bond guys, almost went to jail. The rest of us are usually broke, but there are family basements with fold-out couches flung across the American empire. New Jersey for me, Long Island for the Earl, Ohio for Cutwolf, for us to flee to in case of utter collapse. These are couches of last resort. The shits are pretty left-wing, I guess, but our irony smothers our politics. I know this makes the older types crazy. It made Toad nuts. People think we have no beliefs. Trust me, we do. They're just tiny, fuzzy, fragile things, like fresh-born chicks. We do all we can to protect them, to feed them plump, life-sustaining kitsch worms and keep those greedy killers, the fucking baby boomers, at bay. Besides, what exactly are their beliefs? Dancing to the worst Fleetwood Mac song while balloons float down from the rafters? I once wrote a song for Toad about a certain breed of former flower person. It was called Deadhead Fuck, and it went like this. Deadhead hippie fuck, living on the corporate suck, out of time, out of luck, deadhead hippie fuck. Toad vetoed the tune, said it was too obvious. This from the man who wrote Intercontinental Ballistic Butt Plug in Casper Weinberger's butt. Still, he had a point. Protest songs are not my strong suit. I may not have a strong suit but I do possess a willingness to flash freeze my testicles on this desperate quest to reclaim my fender and save the shits from oblivion. That should count for something. <laughs> so that gives, re- you know, that gives listeners a taste of Jack shit and the band and, and kind of the music scene and just the sensibility that I think he's operating from or trying to operate from. And I had to laugh as a, you know, a, a former Boulder guy, deadhead, I, you know, the deadhead hippie fuck. It reminded me a little bit of the, uh, what was that lyric by Don Henley? You know, the deadhead sticker on a Cadillac, like yeah. the way that scene sort of, you know, followed the boomer trajectory, you know, as it were. And now it would be a Sonic Youth sticker on a Cadillac or on a yeah, Tesla, right. maybe. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can't help but laugh, too. I think of like the Elon Musk stuff that's going on now and i have to snigger a little bit at all these like la hollywood people and their teslas now that elon musk has proven himself to be like such a troll it's just yeah. like you know there's a there's a weird dynamic happening but but is it a good car i mean i don't even know 
I don't. Not if you're using the uh, self-driving mode. No. Apparently, it'll drive you into uh, you know into a wall sometimes. Maybe that's or, the you know. master plan. Uh, maybe it is. I don't know. But I'm glad I don't have one. You know, let's put it that way. And I don't think I'll ever have a Tesla. But you know, I love how there is a collision here happening between this kind of um, gritty, hip, I guess to some extent, music scene, Lower Manhattan. And, you know, the, the literary fiction quality of your work and the meld that's happening with, like, maybe a more genre crime fiction. And I don't know if you've heard this before, but it, it's reminiscent to me a little bit, at least, in a way, of The Big Lebowski. You have these sort of, like, burnouts, you know, in a crime narrative, for lack of a better way of putting it, except that this scene and the people that you're describing have a harder edge like this is filthier like filthy is the word that i would describe you know and it's got a it's got a grit to it that maybe the the lebowski narrative doesn't have like did that ever occur to you as a model or have you heard that in response from readers well i mean i i i don't know if i've heard it maybe i have i mean i'm certainly a fan of that film yeah but um i think i just i am always interested in you know, the wrong person in the situation, you know? And so this, this was a, yeah, it's an example of, you know, the, the, the reluctant or amateur detective having to deal with the problem and, uh, and what, what those kinds of pressures can, uh, can yield for, in terms of narrative and in terms of character. So that's, I mean, I think that's what that drew me to it. And also, I knew I, there was so much I wanted to say about this world and this time, but I wanted something that was very concrete to hang it all on. And so the idea of like, you know, a mystery, the idea of somebody looking for something felt so simple and elegant that I could, you know, kind of pull that as this line from, you know, the beginning to the end. And then all the other stuff I wanted to say, I could just drape over it, all the riffs, all the play, all the, you know, the names and the lyrics and the, the stuff you're talking about, the, you know, the, all the, all the, the bits could, could have, could, could sort of hang off of this taut kind of narrative line of, of a crime, a crime story. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, or even a quest, really what it is, is a quest story, you know, that becomes a crime story. Yeah. And the mystery that we're dealing with here is, uh, as, jack shit just talked about it's like a missing fender so he's got his guitar missing but the guitar is missing because the lead singer who is a heroin junkie has he assumes taken it to sell it to get a fix and not only has he done that but he's disappeared so like the mystery is not only like where's my guitar it's like where's the lead singer like that's the narrative driver and he's like if i find one i find the other and so he's just hunting through the city trying to find them right so that, you know, yeah, that's the, that's the thread. And along the way, you know, you talk about these bits. And I think one of the things that this book does so well and to such great comic effect is skewer the scene and skewer the egos that percolate within the music scene, the competition among bands, the bitternesses and petty jealousies that kind of, I think, will rise up in any art scene you know whether it's literary or music or or whatever it is you know and that's the way it was back in those days and it was a different music business back in those days too like not only was new york on the cusp of great 
like sea changes, you know, in terms of the way that it looked and operated. But the music business was on the cusp, too. This was just at the edge of the digital age. Yeah. And, you know, specifically to this music scene or this kind of music, it was the book takes place after, you know, Nirvana has blown everything wide open. So bands are these bands that were this, these kinds of noisy punk bands are getting signed to these major label contracts, these glitzy contracts. And so there's a scramble. And so Jack is very bitter about this other band that's, you know, seems to be on the verge of that. But everything's very small and petty, as you say. And also, you know, I, one of the things that I had a lot of fun with writing the book was, you know, the, the intensity and seriousness with which Jack, for example, takes their project. You know, it's not, it's not, oh, I'm playing in a band having fun with my friends, you know. It's, this is like world historical serious shit that he's up to. Um, and it may not, you know, they may not know how to actually play their instruments, but that's not the point. This is, you know, this is a serious undertaking. And they are, you know, distinguishing themselves in ways that maybe their peers don't quite recognize yet, but history will, history will see what they were doing. And so that, that's the secret kind of burning little fire inside of him that, that drives him as well. Is that how you were back in the day? Did you take it seriously? I, I, think, I think I took it way, way more seriously than I should have. But that was the only way I could do it. And that was the only way we could do it. I think that we, we, you know, we were not really, I mean, some, our, the, the person, Rob Reynolds, that we mentioned at the, at the outset, he is a very good guitar player. But I, didn't, I was not much of a musician. Our drummer was kind of learning drums. And you know, our bass player was learning bass, although he turned out to be very good, too. And I think like, one of the weird things that happened is the band started to fall apart as we got competent as we got good. Because then we, there became a certain point where we were actually good. And, but we, but something, something shifted in that as well. But there was at the beginning this sort of wonderful communal desire to do something provocative and strange and noisy and, and wild, even though we didn't quite know what we were doing all the time or most of the time. And I think that's, that, that kind of, uh, that passion was you know, we were, it was not unique to us, but that certainly was where we were coming from and where, the, and, but it looks, in retrospect, it always looks kind of funny, but at the time it feels very important. Well, it feels very much in line with like the general punk ethos, which is yeah. that you don't have to be a master of your instrument or a master musician or like a note right. reader, but you have to have something to say. We were very aware of that, yeah. Yeah, and you did. You clearly have a lot to say, you know, and I think that maybe is why you have had like success transitioning from music to literature, you know, it was all there somewhere. Yeah, and I mean, I was, I was writing fiction before. And, uh, and in a way, doing the band was a flight from some of the expectations I'd put on myself as a, you know, to be a writer. And uh, one of the things that I loved about this band was that, you know, you couldn't hear my lyrics because the guitar was so fucking loud. <laughs> And so there was something kind of liberating about, you know, you could hear my screams, but you really couldn't make out what I was saying. And that was fine with me. You know, it was mostly about emoting. It was mostly about going out into the audience. It was mostly about, we were talking last night. I, I did an event in New York last night, and we were talking about, you know, this one show that I had kind of forgotten about, but where my parents had split up, but they decided on the same night to come. They'd never seen my band before, but they came I think it was at the knitting factory and they came and they're like at either end of the room and I'm like 
flailing around and I'm I'm lying on the lying on the floor crying and talking about my parents while the band is you know oh, chugging away. <laughs> is there a tape of this show? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Oh. Or maybe fortunately. Yeah, or maybe fortunately, or maybe yeah. fortunately. Well, speaking of uh, parents, I mean, you talk about trying to write fiction and then maybe fleeing from it. I think any writer who's ever tried to write fiction can relate to fleeing from it. But I want to talk a little bit about family dynamics because your father is a notable writer and journalist. He makes a cameo in this novel. He does. And so you grew up in a house where being a writer was not exotic necessarily. And I'm sure you felt a little, it's a little, you know, a little of that paternal thing where you're maybe trying to carry the mantle or join the family business in some sense. Like were there internal pressures or external pressures that you were coping with or a sense of like, man, if I'm gonna do this, it better be good. Like I can imagine how you might psych yourself out a little bit with that. Yeah, I mean, I think there was all in my head, it was all pressures I was, I was putting on myself. I never got that kind of pressure from my family and they, they were supportive of me doing whatever I wanted to do or whatever, you know, was my passion. I, and I think that I had to, I think that I kind of followed in his footsteps, my father, and my mother was a writer as well. She was a journalist and a novelist. And so the writing was a, you know, a family affair. And I, I think that what I had to do, and this was partly what I was doing in that band, was I had to sort of burn all that down and find out like what I wanted from it and what writing meant to me. Because I kind of early on was able, I had a facility and I learned a lot of tricks and I had a lot of advantages being in a house with people who wrote and read. And, and so like I kind of got, you know, I, I was a very, you know, accomplished, you know, pat on the head, high school writer and, you know, in college, oh, you're so good, you know. Wait, 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 you got, a, you got, a, you got a, a medal from Ronald Reagan, I read. I did get a medal, well, yeah. Where is it? And you're wearing it right now, which is strange, but I'm going to go with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can see it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think again, in my, you know, in my Gen X way, I, you know, I distrusted that too. So uh, I, uh, I really had to sort of re, reinvent, I don't, don't want to say reinvent myself, but I had to kind of strip it all down and build it back up again. A little bit and part of that was go, being in this band and not really dealing with writing and then when I got out of the band and started really writing again sort of going my own way and that that was that was part of the process but I which is but the truth is is that I also got a lot growing up in that house and you know as I said was around people who talked about writing who cared about writing and a house full of books and and I you know and I always feel a little sheepish because I have so many friends who are writers who had to like really do some, you know, uh, some incredibly brave things to kind of free themselves from family and expectation. You know, how could you be a writer? Came from families that never heard of such a thing um, and really forged this, this, you know, unique identity for themselves. And yeah, I am in a way, you know, I'm just working in the store, you know, the family store in some ways. But um, you still have to kind of make your own space there. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious to know, you say you get a lot. I'm imagining it's mostly like osmotic, like it was just around and you were listening yeah. in on the conversations. I mean, I, there weren't like tutoring sessions or anything like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. Your yeah. father wasn't <laughs> drilling you on like past no, participles no. in the kitchen or no. anything. No. Okay. No, there's a, I, always, I was always taken with the story of the, I can't remember his name. It was Edward Bunker, the crime novelist who, he wrote Drugstore Cowboy. 
Okay. And he just he spent a lot of time in prison. That's where he wrote a lot of his books, I think. But uh, this, uh, the story, if I remember, it was that his father was this horrible, abusive, alcoholic English teacher. And so he'd beat him, but then he'd force him to learn grammar, and then beat him, and then force him to learn grammar. And it was this horrible childhood, but he was like, he did get this kind of education. <laughs> I was that gonna say, that's, him one, to, that's one way. It's one way to learn, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that allowed him to write these books in prison after he had become like a, a junkie and a burglar and all these other things. But yeah. Well, I could feel you having fun with the Robert Lipside section of the book where your father sort of makes a cameo as a talk show host. I believe, I'm trying to recall, like it's like watching on TV him interview somebody, right? I well, yeah, he interviews Donald Trump. Okay, yeah. And then uh, the parents, I could feel you also having fun with the mother and father character, which I'm sure you've fictionalized a bit, but uh, also probably contains some kernels of truth. And I know from having done some prep, like the early 90s were not only formative you, for you artistically, but you lost your mom at that time, I believe. So I imagine like it was emotionally loaded at that time, like not only in the ways of young adulthood and finding oneself creatively and otherwise, but also kind of going through that sea change. Like, is that, that, that's filtered into this book too, right? And some of its sense of nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, that's always there. I mean, I've written, I've written much more directly about that, about my mother's death and other books and stories. But I think whenever I'm writing a mother character, that's, that's sort of haunting it, hovering above it in some ways. So, you know, that's, that's certainly a part of it. And that, yeah, the mother character, while well, the, the dad character, is not so much my dad because my dad is actually in the book as his, as himself. The mother character is a lot more like my mother, I would say. So yeah, that you know that that's sort of part of it. And um, yeah, the '90s to me feel like all of it. It was it was music. It was me figuring some stuff out. It was me suffering in a lot of ways from you know stupid things I was doing to myself. And it was you know. Being with my, and I spent a lot of time with my mother before she died, and so that was a big experience sure. as well. Well, you know, you talk about the, like I was talking about like the filthy, gritty, like the harder edge that this book has, or the scene that you're depicting compared to say, like the, the scene of like a Lebowski-ish narrative. And a lot of it has to do, I think, with the drugs. You know, like there's a stoner narrative and then there's this narrative, which is more of like a heroin and carpet cleaner, <laughs> uh, you know, narrative uh, speed, you know, these kind of uh, more dangerous substances. And you dabbled a little bit in that. It's a very knowing, like the writing is very good. It feels lived in uh, either because you did great research or you did experiential research. <laughs> But it sounds like you had a maybe a time at that at yeah. that age where you were uh, dabbling. I mean, I got into some bad scrapes at different times, but yeah, I mean, I'm always thinking about how you know that there was an old comedy adage that you know cocaine's funny but heroin's not. <laughs> and, but I was when I was writing this, I was like, I'm gonna make heroin funny. It's pretty funny. <laughs> it's a nice challenge to give yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so. I, I want to talk, I mean, this is a small brushstroke detail, but it's a recurring joke in the, in the narrative. And I just want to talk to you about the Steven Seagal movie, Under Siege, because yeah. I feel like it's packed with some meaning. Like, I don't feel like it's just an incidental mention or just like a throwaway joke. Like, let's talk about Under Siege, which I can't in my brain, if I'm being honest, recall other than like maybe just the name and 
some vague notion of the poster, but like, how does this movie factor into your life and how did it show up in this book? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly why I landed on that. I think I later had a running conversation about Under Siege with a friend of mine and maybe it was retroactively. And then I saw that it was out at that time. But yeah, I mean, that's the one where he's, he's the cook on the boat and it's taken over by the bad guys and he has to, you know, fight them off. But I think it was like sort of the, to me, Steven Seagal is sort of very, you know, emblematic of, a, of the 90s ridiculous action hero as opposed to the 80s ridiculous action hero. And, I, I, you know, Steven Seagal may be from the 80s, but to me, like, something about the long ponytail, you know, jibes with, you know, the Seattle grunge look and, uh, and you know, so, and his sort of, you know, mix of Western and Eastern kind of philosophy or pseudo-philosophy and the, the the sheer ridiculousness of him, um, but I, I think I think I think of him as you know a quintessential you know B, '90s B movie action sure. star. So he's kind of hovering there in the in the cultural landscape of the book as well. You know, coming up a few times. Well, there's a character who's you know a would be film critic, and so he's he has lots to say about different films of the time, including including I think Unforgiven, which comes up and. And Lorenzo's Oil, which nobody talks about. <laughs> I remember that film. Susan Sarandon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like just maybe the, 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 the words, under siege, like there's something thematically resonant yeah. maybe to the, what was going on or the, the emotional feeling of that time and that age and that place or something. Well, I think being, yeah, anyone who's 22, 23 probably feels under That's, siege yeah. right. on some level. <laughs> right. uh, so... When it comes to, you know, writing about, like you say, the drug narrative, the the gritty details, uh, people getting lost to addiction, trying to find humor in it. I mean, this is sort of the complicating factor of like this stuff because it can really be dark and it can really lead to bad stuff. You know, people die all the time getting lost in this stuff. But there is something... Yeah, I mean, people, my friends of mine did die, and you know, the the drummer of Dung Beetle died recently, and you know, it wasn't from drugs, but it was, you know, the lifestyle, like caught up. I don't know if it was. Yeah, I mean, it was. He had a cancer diagnosis, and that who knows oh, what right. it was, but um, it's just you know, it reminded me of the of you know the the loss of people losing yeah. people. Well, it also uh, it's also funny. It's also guess, funny, is what I want to say. Yeah, well, I mean, but I mean, that's my, that's, I guess, where I always come to with this is, you know, the, life is very dark and very funny at the same time, yeah. all the time. And, and so I don't understand people who just dwell in one or the other, who don't, who refuse to see the darkness and just want to have kind of superficial laughter. And then the ones who like just want to dwell in the darkness. And don't see how fucking hilarious right. it all is, and, and how absurd the absurdity of a lot of it, and just sort of, and how the humor can be a a, a way for us to uh, commiserate, and over you know what's going on all, and so I you know it's all it's all always both. Things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and I think there's a there's a section of the book where, you know, you're talking about Jack Shit's experiments with, what is it? Is it carpet cleaner? It's some sort of some sort of powder, speed, or you know where he's. Well, he he thinks he thinks it's cocaine, but it's actually like, I mean, he becomes to realize it's probably like some kind of 
scouring powder <laughs> or some sort. It's, he's so being I mean, sold. There, there you go. Case in point. <laughs> case in point, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, wow, this is pretty hardcore. He's really like <laughs> hearing voices and seeing shit. And then at the same yeah, time, it's, yeah. it's hilarious. <laughs> um, so I, I want to dig in a little bit deeper to the notion of you needing to make writing make sense to you on your own terms, especially as a, as somebody who's kind of a legacy writer, somebody who comes from writers and has like a, had a sense of it professionally as a child. I think for people listening who might be in a similar situation or might just need to get down to the core of what they're preoccupied with and what they want their particular art slash writing project to mean to them, you know, going yeah. and working in a different medium, uh, like, like, I guess the question that I'm driving at is like, so you were in a noise rock band or a post-punk band. And like you said, you were kind of screaming up there on the mic, but you couldn't really make what you were saying. That makes some kind of crazy sense to me that that would give you the, the release that you needed. It would give you some cover and some time to think and sort it out. It gave you a place to be that wasn't maybe in league or even in competition with your folks or with other writers like, can we drill down a little bit more into what you learned from that time about yourself as a writer? Well, I think that what I learned was, you know, after a while of doing that, which and I love doing it, I also, one thing was the realization, like, I can't make a life in music because I'm not a musician. And at a certain point, like, I won't be able to do the things, you know, do much more than what I'm doing. And then I felt, you know, I was came across again uh, the writer Barry Hanna, someone I've always loved, but he, you know, he had a line, I'm greedy for lives and language. And I, I realized I still had this greed for language and you know, I, wanted, I wanted to get back to, not necessarily that I had to be heard, but I wanted to hear what I was saying, at least to myself. I, I wanted to hear myself say mm. And so that, it was, that was a question like, why do I care about, like do I, I've been playing the role of a writer for a while then I stopped, and then I had to ask myself, like, what does it mean to me? What, is, what, do, what does literature mean to me? What, is, what do books mean to me? What, is, what do sentences mean to me? And it turned out that they really meant a whole lot. And I had to sort of, as you say, do something else, but also sort of get with my, just get with myself alone in a room for a long time. And, you know, not, it wasn't about showing everybody my work, but it was just about writing and reading and writing and reading. And it wasn't because I had this necessarily this big goal ahead of me. It was because I realized that's I was very happy. And it wasn't about being a, like I knew what an agent was when I was ten, but like I you know I had to go back and find out like what and you know, when I was younger than that, I felt alive with language. Like words really interested me and the sounds of words really interested me and the music of, of, of words really interested me. And like I felt, I think I'd lost that on some level, um, and then I, f I found that again. And that com like comic sensibility, you f you figure that out. Like, is that like an explicit intent? Like, I want to I want to be a funny writer because that is often how you're characterized. But there's also so much pathos in your work that it can feel like maybe you're working. Like you say, it's that dark and light interplay. I'm wondering, like, is it what's the chicken and what's the egg? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't think you can choose to be, a, you know, you, can, you don't choose that. That's sort of the way, the, and the world comes to you that way. And that's sort of the spin you put on it. 
And sometimes, you know, some people lean more towards the, the funny part and some people lean away from it. And both things can be great, but it's just kind of your personality. So it's hard, you can't like make yourself a certain kind of writer. You kind of are what you are. I, I, you know, and you, within that you can do a lot. I mean, I remember I had a student once who, he really, he just wanted to be Samuel Beckett. And he kept writing these like bad imitations of Samuel Beckett. And then he wrote this other story that was something else entirely. It was a very more kind of conventional, realist, kind of American style short story. And it was good. It was really like it was, it was how he felt things. And it, uh, we were all like, this is great. And he was devastated because he said to me, I don't want to be that kind of writer. And, you know, that's, that's a, that's a, that's an actual problem that some people have. That, that stymies them is they there's an idea of what they're the kind of writer they want to be or they're supposed to be or the kind of work that they think is valid and then there's what's really coming out of them right and you have to sort of reconcile those things if you're going to go forward yeah no that's a great point I think a lot of people have that like they especially you know you idealize some something or you think it's like cool a lot of times I think young male writers you know it's like there's an edginess or some kind of anarchic temperament or sensibility to the work or the writer himself or herself was like particularly chaotic and meanwhile like you're a kid from the suburbs <laughs> you know like conventionally educated and it's like you can't no and I mean the thing is is like all of the stuff and this this gets into this book you know there's a cop at a certain point who himself is kind of you know LARPing on a certain level um, is like you know telling the kids like you're just in this like little protected like dirtbag Disneyland here. Like there's all this stuff going on around you you don't even know, and you're like you mm -hmm. know shooting your drugs and playing your music and you know being crazy and but it's you know it's all it's all in this bubble that you don't see. Yeah, I wanna I wanna actually stop you because this is something that I I loved in the book and that I noted is the characterization of the cop Shad. Yeah. What's the last name? Uh, forgive me. It's Neilden. Fielden. What? Yeah. Fielden. Yeah. So Shad Fielden, I loved how you're, you're playing him against type. You know, usually, like we talked earlier about Gen X and our relationship to the man, like our ironic posturing about the man. Uh, you know, this is a cop who's educated, privileged, literary. You know, he's like not the cop that you're expecting for a lower Manhattan. He's a, he's a Gen like X cop, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and then not only, okay, and then... Uh, in tandem with that, something that I want to say, which I did not say earlier, is that when I was drawing the Lebowski comparison, but I was saying, like, this is a, a grittier, kind of, like, filthier, <laughs> filthier scene, it's also a more sophisticated scene. Like, the band and its sensibility and its characters are shot through with literary concerns, yeah. which makes some sense, con considering the parallels to your own life. But, like, you know, there's like your name dropping like Baudrillard yeah. and like all this kind of stuff in the book and in the conversations that happen between bandmates and, you know, even within, I think, uh, Jack Shit's head, you know, as he's sort of reflecting. But it's it's definitely got uh, like an air of sophistication and literariness to it that's maybe. Well, he went, I mean, he's a guy who went to college and, you know, got his head stuffed with theory and, and you know, literary theory and, you know, and now he doesn't really know what it all means, and it's it, he doesn't really uh, have a 
he, he does not he doesn't have a uh, a real bead on it but he has the phrases spilling out of him and and so and he's trying to trying to bend whatever that was stuck in his head into uh, a theory of his band at times but that's that's what it is and I think like the main thing is that you know these they're they're trying hard but they're they're doing all the stuff that like might some people might think is cool but it's not it's not cool it's they're flailing you know <laughs> and that's that's really that's where I come to with it it's like these are people that are really flailing and don't know trying to figure out what what their lives mean what at what what everything else means and it's it's hard and people flail into dangerous situations and they flail into funny situations and um and that's what the early 20s felt like to me my early 20s not in well, the 90s. well me too yeah. and what i'm thinking is like if you're in your early 20s and you're not flailing aren't you kind of doing it wrong because I, you're not yeah. challenging yourself i think and so. that's right i mean who's that show me somebody in their early 20s who's got it all nailed down and isn't flailing and i'm guessing i don't want to hang out with that person <laughs> You might want to hang out in their house, though. <laughs> right, right. Hey, I'll drive their Tesla, but I mean, right, yeah. Yeah, come on. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the day-to-day and -day craft, because I know my listeners would probably love to hear you talk about it. Uh, at this stage of your career, with several books under your belt, um, is it getting any easier? What does a day-to-day -day Sam Lipsight writing routine look like? I, I want to say... I recall, oh, is that your ride? Is it here? Yeah, they've come, they finally come for me. <laughs> I was going to say, glad we could get this on tape. Yeah. But uh, I, I want to say years ago we talked and you sort of were telling me about your schedule and how you were, you know, you had to kind of build your writing work into your academic uh, career. Uh, I'm assuming that's still the case. Like, yeah, how, do you, how are you getting it done? that's still the case. You know, I mean, I, there's nothing to complain about, but like my, my prime writing Time is you know the end of the semester in May to September like and that's that's when I get a lot you know a lot of the heavy lifting done um, and so the the summer for me is like a very you know disciplined hot you know hard-working time when I'm you know writing most of the day every day and then during the teaching semesters I'm still working on things but it's you know more inter intermittent and it's more you know, editing and doing smaller things, or if I'm working on a novel, like I dip into it, but I don't, I can't get that sustained time that I get during the summer. So I sort of see my, my life is sort of split between those two periods, the time that I'm teaching and the time that I'm uh, writing. You know, they always say, you know, you have your writing, you have your job, and you have your family, and you can only do two at once. And I'm not going to like take time off from my family. <laughs> I'm not going to be like, Sorry, I'll see you guys in six months. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Maybe, I mean, I'm sure there are some people that do that, but. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it's a lot. I, you know, the only thing I can say, uh, like, it seems like maybe that system, especially once you get acclimated to it, might be good creatively because there's the tension in, embedded into it. Like, God, I wish I could write, but I can't because I got to tend to my, you know, the, the teaching and the family. But then when you finally get to the summer, I have to imagine you're raring to go and you've probably been thinking about it and jotting down stuff and kind of mentally working out characters and plot lines and 
doing all the kind of subconscious work that then finds its way into yeah. the book. I mean, I don't write much down before I actually start composing a first draft, but it's it's definitely percolating the whole time. And, mm. you know, I, I, do, I do believe that you do a lot of your work beforehand without knowing it. As you said, your subconscious is, is, is at play. And so with this book, I think it was 2019, summer of 2019, maybe I really got going. Yeah, it was, and I, I, I wrote this one in, in longhand and then some notebooks and just was like, I'm just gonna write this whole novel in longhand and then put it, and I hadn't done, I do that with short stories sometimes, but I, I've never done that with a novel before. And um, it was interesting. I, I really, you know, I mean, I had these like weird little fountain pens and these notebooks and a I, quill. You know, I could go all over. I could write. I write. I'd find places to write. Like a friend gave me his apartment during the day, and some, I had a picnic bench in this park that I would go to, and just I had my spots, and I would go with my notebook and my pens, and just write this thing. And um, you know, you you know, you revise a little bit as you go, but you're not like doing lots of cutting and pasting and deleting obviously you and your hands are covered in ink and it's you know very very physical very um uh you know I, and i think writing in a lot of levels is can be very right. physical and like that's when it's going really well as you feel your whole body sort of involved yeah. with it and um and so that's how i got you know that was how i got a first draft and then i put that into the computer and then i was you know doing the normal thing of reading and revising and reading and revising and editing, printing out, editing, revising, doing all that. But that first sort of discovery draft or, you know, figuring out what it is that I'm writing. Like that's and, and was it better? It was, yeah, I mean, I think that it was because it was this kind of contained story and this contained time frame. And it, I kind of had this idea of, of, of what I always could go back to. It worked. If it was something, a more complicated and involved book, I don't know. Yeah. Will you do it again? Like, is this your new process? Yeah. I'll, well, I'll try it, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I've thought about that. Maybe I'll do, like, stone carving. Uh, yeah, <laughs> gonna be, you can make a scene in the park. Like, like I do it in Sanskrit first, <laughs> and, then, and then I translate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I love talking with you and love the book. Uh, it's just always a pleasure. Like, there's something about your books, and I think it's because I treasure people who can really write funny like you really can write stuff that makes me laugh and that's rare and then it always just goes down easy like there's a quality to the prose line by line you know, I can always tell when somebody's really put the work in uh, so I don't know thanks for that it's inspiring and uh, just really appreciate the time and getting a chance to talk with you again and I always ask people at the close, if they're working on anything new, like no pressure if you're just, uh, you know, dealing with this one. But do you have another book in the pipeline? No, I mean, I just, I just published this novella uh, about a, two or a month ago, two months ago, called Friend of the Pod that was published by Gagosian Picture Books. Oh, right, yeah. And, uh, and they, do, they do a little series. The first one was Otessa Moshvag, and then the next, second one was Percival Everett. And I was the third one, and that's like a sixty-page novella with a, some. And you can, if you get it, you buy it. You can you get art. This kind of poster by this artist Jordan Wolfson, and it's kind of a collaboration. But um, so that so I wrote a, I wrote this novel and I wrote this novella, and I'm empty now. You're empty. Good for you. <laughs> and so, so I think, you know, I have a I have some time 
actually I'm not I'm finally on a leave this coming semester so I'm just gonna dive in and see what happens okay but what does that mean like does that mean just read or does that mean write like what do you do no I'm going to, I'm gonna sit down to write but I just don't know what it's what's gonna come oh, okay out. I don't have a plan I think I'm gonna try to write some short stories is what what I'm going to that's that's my vague plan big plan all these books in is you know you get to this place where you're empty I think you probably understand like okay I just got to refill the well sometimes that's just a function of time sometimes it's a function of input I think for maybe writers at earlier stages of their career or, or not it can be disconcerting like that feeling of emptiness can be a little make you feel a little edgy because it's more fun to be like in the thick of a project right oh absolutely there's no worse feeling than handing in your book Right. <laughs> for, for those of you young writers out there <laughs> looking forward to that day, <laughs> you just heard it from Sam. It's a terrible, terrible occasion. But uh, I guess I'm, my question is, do you find that it's getting easier to deal with the blank page? Like the, as, as the books stack up, are you learning and accruing knowledge as you go? And does each subsequent book feel a little bit easier? Or is it always just a process of renewal and learning from scratch? Well, I want it to be more of a process of renewal. I want I, I, I think that what I learned, the wisdom that I've gotten, and it's kind of related to what we were just saying, is I don't panic anymore of, oh, what if I never have anything more to write? You know, I know that things will keep... I, I, I've learned that, that what you have to do is squander it all, and then it, you will fill up again. But if you try to hoard stuff, then you'll just get kind of jammed up and you won't. You won't, you'll have problems. But uh, if you just, don't try to like hold on to anything. Just put it all in whatever you're doing. Leave, you know, leave it everything out on the floor, as they say. Then, you know, you, new stuff will come. Life will come and the language will come. And, you know, you can trust in it. All right. On that note, uh, great to talk with you. Congratulations on No One Laugh to Come Looking for You, and I wish you well on whatever it is that's next. Thank you, Brian. All right, everybody, there we have it. That was Sam Lipsight. His new novel is called No One Left to Come Looking for You. It is out there now from Simon & Schuster. I don't think Sam Lipsight has a website or a social media presence. He might have a Facebook page that his publisher runs. I don't know. He doesn't seem like a social media guy. Maybe he is, and I just couldn't find it. But track him down, or better yet, just go read his book. Again, it's called No One Left to Come Looking for You. It's a novel available from Simon & Schuster, No One Left to Come Looking for You. If you like music, if you like funny, if you like smart, you're going to like it. It's a good one. The Other People podcast is offered freely if you're out there and you're feeling in the spirit please support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod as little as $1 a month. That's it. It's easy. It's user-friendly. It's simple. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to read my novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, one of the best books of the year, according to one person at the San Francisco Chronicle. Bless that person. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. You can read it. You can decide for yourself whether or not it's one of the best books of 2022. The Other People podcast has its own weekly newsletter. I do a newsletter once a week. Go sign up for it over at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in either place. It's free. It's good. It's just once a week. It's a newsletter. It's information. It's informative. 
The Other People Podcast has its own official app. Are you aware of that? It too is free. It's a good app. It's available for iPhone or Android or whatever you use. And it's a very nice way to listen. Check out the Other People app. The Other People Podcast has a YouTube channel. You can now watch the show on the Other People YouTube channel. Search for it by name at YouTube, Other PPL, and hit the subscribe button. It's free. Likewise, if you're on TikTok, follow the Other People Podcast on TikTok. You can view the highlights. You can stitch it. You can forward it. I don't know what you do on TikTok, but you can do it over at TikTok. The uh, handle for the show is at otherppl.podcast. The Other People podcast has an official website, otherppl.com. You can follow the show on Twitter, at otherppl, or on Instagram, at otherppl.podcast. If you would like to email me, the show's official website is letters at otherppl.com. All right, I think that's it. Good time today with Sam Lipsight. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I do not know exactly what's going on next week. The holidays are coming up. There might be a holiday episode. There might not. I'm sorting out the schedule. I might be done for the year. I don't think so. Maybe I am. I don't know. I'm figuring it out. Very caffeinated. Okay. Okay.